As the current pandemic rages on and establishments remain closed, unemployment skyrockets, and the world economy is in shambles, many in this country and the world are looking to our human leaders for salvation and being pulled out of this mess. Here in New Jersey, Governor Murphy's approval rating is at its peak at around 70% right now, and many New Jerseyans are looking to him to lead the state upward and onward. In addition, this year is a presidential election year, so many are looking at the two presidential candidates and how they will either enact or continue the nation's recovery, depending on how you look at it. But in the Bible, there is one of the most powerful declarations of a salvific leader in history. And it's not a king, it's not a military leader, it's not even a member of the Jewish priesthood or Sanhedrin. As we continue in our devotional series in the Gospel of Matthew, we're jumping forward a couple of chapters to Matthew 16, where we, ca- where we catch up with Jesus and his disciples having just entered the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there were a couple of cities in the region of Palestine named Caesarea. One was located in the region of Samaria and on the coast of the Mediterranean, which was rebuilt and enlarged by Herod the the Great and renamed after Caesar Augustus. Both those names are of Christmas fame. In the book of Acts, we find out that the Roman governors Festus and Felix lived in this Caesarea, and Deacon Philip also lived there. The second Caesarea was called Caesarea Philippi, also originally named Caesarea after another Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor who immediately succeeded Augustus. After Herod the Great died, his puppet kingdom was divided up by three, with each of his three sons ruling over a section. This city was located in the region ruled by Herod's son Philip, and thus the addition of Philippi was added to distinguish it from the previously built and more well-known Caesarea. Now, why did I go through all that? There was a reason why Jesus picked Caesarea Philippi to ask a profound question to his disciples. Remember how I said that Herod the Great divided his kingdom up into thirds? Well, Philip got the region where he would build Caesarea Philippi, His half-brother Antipas got the region of Galilee, and his other half-brother Archelaus got the region of Judea and its capital city of Jerusalem. However, in 6 AD, Archelaus was deemed too incompetent to rule his share and was disposed by Caesar Augustus, deposed by Caesar Augustus. Not wanting to deal with another Herod, Augustus set up direct Roman governorship over Judea. So that's why we see Pontius Pilate, only a governor, making the decision to crucify Jesus in the early 30s AD. My point is that by the time Jesus is well into his ministry, Philip has shown himself a pretty competent ruler. In fact, he keeps his rule until his death in 34 AD. He was so well-liked, at least by the Romans, that when coins were made in about 30 AD to commemorate the building of Caesarea Philippi, it was Philip's face that was crafted onto the coins. And it was into that political environment that we pick up in Matthew 16, 13. And we read, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and this is his profound question, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The term son of man was most notably first used in God's messages to the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel is called a son of man almost a hundred times in the book of Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel, bookending all the prophecies about Israel's, Judah's, and a bunch of other nations' judgments and destruction, God calls Ezekiel the watchman of Israel. 
Any prophecies God gives to Ezekiel, he's to immediately relate to Israel, just as a watchman on the walls of a city would immediately call out any coming military danger to the city. So Jesus is connecting himself to the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, both as the watchman and to their messianic prophecies. He asks his disciples, what are the people saying about me? And possibly as their prophet. He gets the responses that are only natural. The disciples respond with, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and some say one of the other prophets. Those who say that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist obviously didn't pay too close attention to Jesus' baptism. And John the Baptist came in the same spirit as Elijah. So at least two of these guesses are flat out wrong and misled. Jesus then turns to his disciples and asks them personally, in this region of Caesarea Philippi and its political environment, but who do you say that I am? In a location where most generally accepted their leadership as competent and ruling well, even in spite of lingering disdain towards Roman rule in general, Jesus asks his closest companions, you've been with me long enough. Who do you say that I am? These guys have been with Jesus for quite some time now, witnessing miracle after miracle, listening to his teaching, watching him interact with the Pharisees, and knowing the fervor of most to force him to become the Jewish king that would take his boot to the Romans. Jesus could have gotten any number of answers, and Peter, ever the one to just blurt out whatever was on his mind at any given moment, makes one of the greatest declarations in scripture and in human history. We read in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Your translation might read, You are the Christ. They both mean the same thing. The word Christ is transliterated from the Greek Christos, which in turn is derived from the word meant to anoint with oil. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah for the anointed one. Of course, this is a reference to the prophecies about the Messiah being God's anointed one as king. But those who knew anything about the Jewish scriptures also knew that the prophecies about the Messiah also revealed that the anointed one would also be God. So Peter is actually making two statements here in verse 16. The first one is that is when he declares Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. He's declaring that Jesus fulfills all that is wrapped up in the prophecies of the Messiah, including him being the king and God. That's all wrapped up in that first statement. The second statement is the confirmation of that. So there's no confusion, Peter references Isaiah 9.6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Peter may or may not have necessarily understood all the theology that explains how Jesus is both God and relating to God the Father, but knows there is a direct connection and Jesus is that prophesied Son of God. It's the most basic declaration of faith in who Jesus has been saying he is all the way up to this point. Jesus makes it a teaching moment at that point. He reveals to his disciples what his program will be in the future and what will be the beginning of that. He first tells Peter that he was blessed because Peter didn't figure this all out on his own. It was revealed to him by God the Father, and Peter simply believed it. This is the first time that Jesus divulges what he's going to do 
in the book of Matthew. And what is this plan? Jesus has already referred to Simon Peter as the stone or little rock when he renamed him Cephas back when he first called Peter to be his disciple in John chapter 1. The Greek version Petros, from where we get the English Peter, means stone. Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, 18, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now we see where Jesus refers to Peter as a stone or a rock, but conservative Bible scholars notice a clear distinction in the, in the original language. Jesus refers to Peter as the stone, but when he refers to the rock on which he will build his church, he uses a different version and uses the distinction of bedrock. Because of this, Jesus is referring to himself as the bedrock on which he will build his church. It's not going to be any kind of human leadership, no matter how competent, that will change the world. While God has established certain human leaders to be blessings, they will not be what changes the world. It doesn't matter how competent a Roman-appointed ruler over the region of Caesarea Philippi is, how high a state's governor's approval rating is, or who our next president will be in only a few short months. They will not have the power to shake the very foundations of the world, both seen and unseen. Here, Jesus was introducing something the world had never before seen and would never be able to imitate, no matter how strong its governmental ruling is. Right here, Jesus introduces to the world, through disclosing it to his closest companions, the church. What will be even more powerful about the church's founder than any other world leader could hope to emulate is, the, is what Jesus discloses next in verse 18. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. In Hellenistic Jewish understanding, Hades was another word for death. In other words, the greatest power known to man, death, would not have any power against the founder's power nor the growth of the church. In fact, it was the founder's death that initiates the building of the church in the first place in world history. The disciples were supposed to remember that Jesus' death would not prevent his future plans to build his church upon himself. If they had remembered, then they wouldn't have despaired at his death being a permanent destruction of everything that was supposed to happen. More than that, though, physical death has never and will never derail Jesus' program for his church either. Early church father Tertullian is often quoted as saying, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that the greater the persecution, the greater the spread of biblical Christianity. You can't hold down the church. And as can also be seen in verse 18, if you took all the powers of hell and directed them at the church, they still couldn't destroy it. As Jesus next divulges strictly to Peter in the next verse, Peter would be given the keys of authority to dispense on earth what was decided in heaven. In fact, Peter would have the privilege of being the first to announce to the world that the Holy Spirit had arrived on the day of Pentecost and the program of Jesus' church had begun. You know what? Jesus' church only continues to grow, and no powers can withstand it. Even though we can't gather together temporarily right now, that doesn't decrease the power that Jesus intends for the church. It just looks a little different right now. And hopefully, very soon, we'll be able to gather together once more to worship God together. But for the time being, we are still 
the church. We still have the power and authority that Jesus declared he would pour out on the church here in Matthew 16. Our prayers have the power to change the world. Our conversations with others, even if they happen virtually, have the power to change lives. We still have the only source of hope for this confused, dark, and searching world, and that will never change. See, crises always shake humanity to the core and force them to look at their priorities. Crises always cause people to start looking at what is truly important in this life. It's the perfect soil for we who have the never-shaking hope of Jesus to plant seeds in. Is the nation's economy falling apart and the stock market still volatile? It doesn't matter in the light of Jesus. Is someone sick and possibly even facing death? Jesus gives the much-needed hope in that despair. Are people losing heart because any kind of reopening of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the country is very slow going? Jesus transitions our thinking into a mindset focused on eternity. Humanity's hope will never depend on human leaders. God may give grace towards human leaders and direct them to make the wisest decisions, but those leaders are not where humanity's hope lies. Humanity's hope only hinges on Jesus, and his church is the entity he's commissioned to extend his hope to this world. It doesn't matter the health crises or natural disasters or national collapse. Nothing will stop the hope of Jesus from going forth. Even all the powers of hell cannot stop, derail, interfere with, or kill Jesus' church. So, let's not lose heart. Jesus' church will still prevail, even under state orders and restrictions to gather together, uh, to not gather together. Jesus' message will still go forth to hurting, dark, despairing, and confused hearts. People will still be saved from their sins and grow in their faith. The church will continue to grow, even if we can't presently see it, and the church will continue to be blessed. Who knows what kind of spiritual revival God is in the process of unleashing? Who knows what kind of of season of spiritual growth we're experiencing now and will experience in the near future? Who knows what kind of power the world will see from the church in the coming days? All I know is our King, the Son of God and God Himself, has established His church, is sustaining His church, preserving His church, providing for his church, and empowering his church, and has an incredible plan for his church. All the powers of hell cannot stand against us, and we will witness what God is doing now and what he has planned for our future.